Will you please pray with me. <clears throat> Almighty and everlasting Father, we do praise you that your mercies are new every morning, that your comfort is abounding. So we pray especially this morning for those who are in a special need of your mercy. Those who need to know your comfort and your peace. We pray for those who may be struggling with their health. Those who may be finding it hard to make ends meet. Those who have wandered away from you. Lord, we just ask that out of your mercy and great love, those who are hurting, those who are enduring trials and hardships would know that your sovereignty is good that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are forgiving, that you are a God of great comfort. And so as we now turn to your word, as we continue to worship you, we ask that you would grant us understanding, that you would instruct our hearts so that we would be your people who are able to extend mercy and comfort and to bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So can you recall a time when you were in dire straits and all you could do was wait for help to arrive? Right, maybe a car broke down and you were left on the side of the road just waiting for roadside assistance. Right here in Montana, perhaps you know stories of folks who've gotten lost in the wilderness and just had to wait for someone to come and find them. In Indiana, it would be, I don't know, getting lost in a cornfield. Right, stories, these stories of dramatic intervention have the power to, to grip our attention, don't they? Right, maybe you remember the summer of 2018 when a group of 12 boys and their soccer coach were trapped in a cave in northern Thailand. People from all over the world watched as the rescue effort involving more than 10,000 people and more than 100 divers brought everyone out of that cave alive. Or perhaps you've, you've seen the fairly recent film Dunkirk that tells the, the story of the successful evacuation of more than 300,000 men from the beaches of Dunkirk during World War II. Uh, using a vast assortment of civilian and naval vessels, British forces saved those men from certain death as German forces were bearing down on them. And then there's the story of Captain Phillips in April of 2009. Right after Somali pirates boarded his cargo ship, he was taken hostage but eventually rescued after members of a Navy SEAL team got involved. Right, in those situations, it's obvious help is needed. Right, if any of us were trapped in a cave, stuck on a beach, surrounded by 
enemies taken hostage by pirates. We all hoped someone would swiftly and dramatically intervene on our behalf. But thankfully, most people don't find themselves in such situations. And so it's easier for you and me to conclude that we're safe, that our lives are, are going well, and we certainly aren't in need of any dramatic intervention. But the Bible works on an altogether different premise. Right? It says that things aren't right with us, with me. Right? According to the Bible, we aren't safe because of our sin. Right? In our sin, our rebellion, our, our disregard for God, we are actually in the most perilous condition before him. So what the Bible says is that the just reward for sin is eternal death. And if that's the case, all of us need an intervention. And that's how the gospel of Luke begins. Luke tells us how God has intervened in the most dramatic of ways. That God has come to our rescue. He has intervened on our behalf by becoming human. What we refer to as the incarnation. God has taken on our flesh without ceasing to be God. He has become fully man. And last week, Pastor Ryan covered this passage where the angel Gabriel came to a young virgin named Mary and told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in our passage this morning, we hear from a woman named Elizabeth, who we met two weeks ago. And she's the mother of John the Baptist. And we hear from Mary. And what we are hearing from these two women is a response to the amazing way God has chosen to intervene and come to save the very people who have sinned against him. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. And in these verses, we learn three things about God's intervention. God's intervention is surprising. God's intervention is covenantal. And God's intervention inspires joy, awe, and obedience. So Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flower fades. So beginning in verse 46, Mary burst into this song of praise. And you might have heard the, her song referred to as the Magnificat, which is simply just the first word of the Latin translation. And you notice in verses 46 through 50, the first half of this song, Mary sings about God's gracious action toward her specifically. And she doesn't interpret her miraculous conception as something she was owed or, or deserved. Right? Mary's a good biblical theologian. Right? Meaning she knows that bearing the son is, is all owed to the free grace of God. And so in this song, Mary is not drawing attention to herself. She's, she's not setting herself above the rest of humanity and asking people to fall down and worship her. She's doing what we should all do when we recognize God's graciousness towards us. Right? She points others to the greatness of God. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. She wants God to be prominent and God to receive the praise. But I wonder, is that true of you? Right? Are you more interested in magnifying yourself or God? Do we want to be seen, to be made much of? What happens if we don't get the credit or the attention that we think we deserve? But friends, as Paul asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Friends, we aren't meant to be silent about God's gifts, right? the good things that he has done in our lives. Right? The apostle Paul, nowhere in the Bible, necessarily rules out boasting or celebrating. Instead, we are to do what Mary does. Right? We make our boast in God's grace, we draw attention to God, not ourselves. So that's the first part of, of Mary's song. The second part, verses 51 to 55, you see that Mary's focus shifts. And she's actually singing about the wider meaning of her conception. And you'll notice that she understands that the birth of Jesus will mean a, a reversal of the world's order. 
So look closely at verses one, verses uh, 51 to 53. Right? We're told that those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts think those who are proud of their intellect. They'll be scattered. Right? The mighty are brought down from their thrones. The rich are sent away empty. Right? In other words, all those who look to be in control will lose their control. Right? Those who appear to be on top will be brought down. Right? As Jesus put it later, some who are first will be last. And so the question is, why does the coming of Jesus scatter the proud, bring down the mighty, and send the rich away empty? And I think the answer is that God's salvation in Christ is by grace alone. He has come to bring a free salvation. We can do nothing to merit or earn this grace. And so what that means is that salvation by grace alone is going to contradict all forms of human self-sufficiency. You see, in Jesus' ministry, his main opponents, those who most strongly resist him, aren't the notoriously immoral of the day. Think the prostitutes, the, the tax collectors. Instead, Jesus' fiercest adversaries end up being those who trust in themselves. Right? It's those who want to, to maintain a certain view of themselves. Right, a view that says that they can save themselves through their intellect, through their power, their positions, their wealth. Right, in other words, it's a view that says my life is just fine. I can run it according to my own will. And I certainly don't need any dramatic inter interference from God. You see, this is why successful, smart, wealthy people are generally more prone to ignore, maybe even flatly reject the idea that they need to be saved completely by grace. It means a hit to our desire for self-exaltation. Right, it demolishes that desire we all have to be self-sufficient. You know, our hearts easily harden against grace because we don't like to think of ourselves as in need, as somehow unable to accomplish something. But here's the goodness of God. God makes it abundantly clear that his salvation is solely from him meaning we never have to be self-sufficient. And the way that God makes it clear to us is by using weak and foolish things to accomplish the salvation of his people. Let's think, why was Mary chosen to bear the Son of God? It wasn't because she was sinless, no, Mary was a poor girl from an insignificant town in Galilee. 
See, remember when, when Gabriel came to Mary and told her about the son that she would conceive, she was told that this son would be given the throne of his ancestor David. His kingdom would be forever. But the surprising part is that before Jesus inherited his throne at the right hand of the Father, he was nailed to a cross to bear the penalty for our sins. So we believe that on the cross, Jesus received God's justice against our sins so that whoever would repent of their sins and turn in faith to Christ would receive not justice, but mercy, forgiveness, and an everlasting life. You see, in the eyes of the world, nothing could be more foolish, more weak than that cross. But Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Christ crucified is what scatters the proud. Christ crucified brings down the mighty from their thrones and sends the rich away empty because it's going to nullify. It nullifies any claim to human self-sufficiency as if in some way we could contribute to this salvation. The cross of Christ flips the world's conventional wisdom on its head. You see, it says life comes through death and your glory comes through the shame of our crucified Lord. See, God's choice to use surprising means to save us from the judgment our sins deserve, friends, is not meant to embarrass us. Right? God doesn't use the cross so he can gloat over us for the rest of eternity. The cross reveals its purpose is to show us that he's sufficient for us. And I think that's why it's far more common for God to use our weaknesses to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Right? Our lowliness is so that the power of Christ may be more visible for others to see. So do you see what this means? It means that as Christians, we are free to make the kind of decisions that might move us down a few rungs on the ladder. The kinds of decisions that might mean giving up some comfort, some ability. Because we know that God can use our emptiness to accomplish what we could never achieve with our abundance. Right? And when that happens, it will be all the more evident to an unbelieving world that all the power and the glory belongs to God and not us. So I encourage you, don't, don't be afraid of your weakness. Right? Don't fear looking lowly. Don't fear looking poor. 
You see, that's exactly how Christ appeared. And no one has accomplished more. And so second, Mary reveals to us that God's intervention is covenantal. So listen to verses 54 and 55 again. Mary sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so what I mean by saying that God's intervention is covenantal is that the coming of Christ is because God keeps his word, right? He doesn't break any of his promises. He is faithful to the end. And so what Mary recognizes is that what has happened to her is simply a continuation of God's faithfulness to fulfill what he promised to Abraham many, many years ago. And actually more than a continuation, she recognizes that Christ is the fulfillment. Right? He is the promise. See, when God entered into a covenant, when he entered into that covenant with Abraham, he made this, this promise. He said, I will indeed bless you, and I'll make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves. And what the Bible comes to reveal, the Bible comes to tell us is that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham who brings this blessing to a vast number of descendants, more than the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And what God was promising to Abraham, to all of his descendants, to all those who would share in his faith, it was the promise of redemption. It was the promise that there would be freedom from our enemies. It was the promise that the, that the communion with God that was lost in Eden would be fully and finally restored. Right? That's what Christ came to do. Right? He came for the redemption of his people. He came for our forgiveness. He came to defeat Satan. He came to restore our lost communion, our broken fellowship with God. He intervened on our behalf so that we could receive the blessings of this covenant simply by putting our faith in him. Friends, imagine if God's intervention was somehow dependent on us. Think what it would mean if God... If God's promise to come to our rescue required us to equally contribute or just contribute 10%, right? if that were the case, none of us, none of us could escape God's judgment. But because God's intervention rests on his faithfulness, see, there's nothing for us to do except simply to put all of our faith and hope in Christ. And I know that there may be times when it appears that God has forgotten. See, at the time Mary received her visit from the angel Gabriel, the people of Israel, Abraham's very descendants, 
hadn't received a word from God in nearly 300 years. Right, the last being the words given to the prophet Malachi. So how easy it might have been for Israel to think that God no longer remembered. And how easy it might be for us to think that God no longer remembers as we go through trials, as we go through seasons of darkness and hardship. And in a particularly hard time in, in the life of the prophet Jeremiah, he prayed, do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Friends, in Christ, we clearly see that God has not broken that covenant. He has not dishonored his throne or spurned his people. He has in no way wavered in his faithfulness. Right, the coming of Christ, the intervention he brings is that his evidence that God has remembered us in mercy. So I encourage you, take time, especially as we approach Christmas, approach the, the end of the year, to remember how God has remembered you and continued to remain faithful. And as you consider God's faithfulness, right, his commitment to honor his word, we should examine our own faithfulness. Are you honoring the promises you've made? Right, when you give your word, is it reliable? Are you known to be trustworthy? You see, God's commitment to honor his covenant came with a high cost, right? The death of the Son of God. So as Christians, we know, as Christians, we honor our word, knowing that it can come with a high cost. You see, that is one way that we show others what God is like, that he is reliable, he is trustworthy. He is faithful, even when it is costly. And lastly, we see that God's intervention inspires joy, awe, and obedience. So in verse 41, we're told that when Mary showed up at Elizabeth, Elizabeth's door, that the baby leaped in her womb. And in verse 44, Elizabeth tells Mary that at the sound of her greeting, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This one's very simple. Jesus is the reason for our joy. And what's interesting about this scene is that John, Elizabeth's son, this one leaping in the womb, was given a particular mission before he was conceived. He was to prepare the way for Jesus. In other words, John was to point away from himself to Jesus. You see, even in the womb, that's what John was doing. So I think here's the implication for us. Our joy is tied up in our capacity to look away from ourselves 
and to look to Christ and to serving him. We know that, that John did not have what you would call an easy life. He lost his head, literally serving the interests of Christ and his kingdom. But in the end, I think we can say that John never lost his joy because he never lost his focus on Christ. Friends, you know that in this life, we can lose just about everything. But our union with Christ, the source of our joy, is something that can never be taken away. Remember, Jesus is our reason for joy. We also see that God's intervention inspires awe. So look at verse 43. Elizabeth asks, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, Elizabeth, even though she is older than Mary, recognizes Mary as her superior. According to Elizabeth, it actually would have made more sense for her to travel to Mary. You see what happened. Instead, the superior came to the inferior. You see, this, is a, this visit itself is a picture of the gospel. Jesus, the king, the greatest of all, came to serve us. He made the greatest journey for our gain. Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, put it like this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, humbled himself, so great his love, and bled for all his chosen race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? How can it be? Friends, why is it granted to us that the Lord of all creation should visit us in this way? That the ruler of the universe, the one who owns everything when he came to us, had nowhere to lay his head. Friends, how can it be that our God should die for us? Sometimes simply all we need to do is to be in awe of his love and of his grace. And finally, we see that God's intervention calls for obedience. So remember from last week, when Mary was told that she'd conceive as a virgin, she responded by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You notice in our passage this morning, Elizabeth announces that Mary is blessed because she believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What we see here is that Mary shows us that upon hearing the news of God's coming to us in Christ, we are to bow to God's word. 
we are to submit ourselves to this good news and we are to believe. You see, we're all very bad at knowing what we need. Right? This is why whenever I go to the grocery store, I come back with things I don't need and things we already have. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us to figure out what we need to do. And God's goodness and his mercy for us, he has told us what we need to do. He came to call us to repent of our sins and believe the gospel. We are to be in the posture of Mary, to be servants of the Lord who keep his word. Friends, this is God's intervention on our behalf. And this is the only rescue plan for us. Because only in Christ, because only in Christ do we find the mercy and grace that can raise lowly sinners to sit in heavenly places. Let us pray. Almighty God, we, we are in awe of you, of your goodness, of your grace, of your love. Help us to understand it better. Help us not to assume that we know everything, but that we would continue to seek you, asking for you to help us to understand what your grace and love can do in our lives. So we pray that you would take this word and make it abundantly fruitful in us. In your son's name we pray, amen.